Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. This is the book of Revelation, session 45, and uh, this one's entitled Transformation of the Bride of Christ. And I think this is a super exciting subject. It's also one that's um, uh, found all throughout Revelation. We're going to touch on this subject kind of bits and pieces throughout our study. But tonight, uh, uh, the concept of the bride of Christ in Revelation. But what we're going to look at tonight is we're really going to touch on that word transformation. We're going to talk about some of the significant transforming moments of the body of Christ in the future. Um, We're going to start with this passage in Revelation 19 and kind of then work our way backwards. How do we get to this point? Revelation 19, 6 through 8, top of page 1, if you've got the notes. This is where we're headed. This is the promise for the church. So no matter what else happens, good, bad, ups, downs, whatever other trends occur, this is a promised reality. This will be the future of the church. Revelation chapter 19, 6 through 8. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the sound of loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, or God's holy people. I want want us to think about that term. We're going to kind of unpack it a little bit in this session. That term, made ready. Now, in a natural sense, when a bride makes herself ready for her wedding day, it has a lot to do with the apparel and, you know, just trying to even get her, her head in the right headspace, you know, getting ready for that day and, and all the celebration with friends leading up to that moment. But the thought process of a bride getting ready for her wedding day is actually a pretty elaborate process. There's a lot that goes into that in the weeks, you know, getting ready, all the, all the details of the, of the wedding, all the details of the dress, all the details of, you know, who to invite, all, all the thought processes of, oh my goodness, I'm about to transition and no longer be a single gal anymore. Like, there's a lot that goes into that thought process of a bride making herself ready. Well, God uses that picture, but it's, it's far more than that picture because we need to understand the concept of a bride getting married on planet earth is the shadow of the real big one. It's not the other way around. It's not that when someone gets married, that's the real picture. Oh, and this, the bride of Christ, the church marrying Jesus, that's like a secondary thing that Jesus needed to use a human analogy to help us understand. We've got that completely backwards. From the beginning, God was, had a son, and God's son was going to get married to a bride. From the beginning. And that bride was always in the heart of God to be the church. God was always planning for his son to be married Before man was made, before there was ever a wedding on earth, there was already a wedding in the heart of God. So we need to have that revelation. But here we see, talking about the church, that there's this promise that before Jesus comes back, the church will have made herself ready. I don't know about you, I look around right now and I see some of the current crisis and difficulties, and I see some of what's getting squeezed out of us in the church, and I don't know how ready we are. I don't, I don't know that you would say we are a bride ready quite yet. I think there's a lot of ready moments that are going to come for us. And we need to recognize this is maybe one of the most um, uh, prophetic 
pictures of our future. This is one of the most promising uh, words out of the scripture about our future. The church will make herself ready, no question. There's not a a question of whether she will or not or how ready she will, will be. She will be fully ready. The question we need to be asking is, what does ready mean? The question we need to be going on the journey is unpacking ready. And I'll just tell you this. There's no simple definition in one word, in one paragraph. That is one of the most loaded phrases in the book of Revelation, made herself ready. Because what is she making herself ready for? Who is she making herself ready for? This is a very big uh, uh, unpacking of that term. Now, let's with that kind of as a backdrop, let's look at this thought process. Jesus, Son of God, deserving an equally yoked bride. He deserves that. I mean, at least. Jesus deserves an equally yoked bride. By the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of Jesus, Paul was inspired to give us 2 Corinthians 6.14, where he's talking about people and what relationships we get into. And he's saying, whatever you do, if you love Jesus, don't you date a lost person. Because you might wind up married to that lost person. Don't wind up in that situation. He says it this way. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now, If by the Spirit of the Lord, we are told that there needs to be an equal yoking, there needs to be an intentionality to not be unequally yoked, how much more is that true for Jesus with his bride? I'm just thinking about how like shameful even the thought is that God, the Father, is going to present to his Son, after all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus is, this like janky, messed up, super deficient bride, like, sorry, son, it's the best I could find. That's a terrible thought. It won't be that way. The church will make herself ready. Now, it's really good news that we're going to have some help. It's really bad news what some of that help looks like, because some of that help looks like great difficulty in our future, but historically, great difficulty actually purifies the church. So, Jesus promised a mature bride. There's a bunch of verses that say that. I'll give you another one here that just talks about the process of discipleship, the process of church, uh, the reality of the church and what's supposed to be happening. This is Colossians 1.28, bottom of page one. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that something can happen. Admonishing the church with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That we might present to Jesus upon his return a fully mature bride. That's part of the process. Jesus is going to get the fully mature bride. That is a really exciting idea. You know, when I hear thoughts from the word that are too good to be true, too big to be true, rather than try to figure them out, I just say, yes, Lord, amen, that's mine. And I just throw myself into the storyline instead of trying to figure it out. I just go, I'm all in, you said it, I believe it, so now help me get there. Help me now take whatever steps, help us as the church, take whatever steps is necessary to get us to this thing, because you said this thing is coming, so I'm in. Jesus, one of the things that we need to recognize about Jesus that's a, a valuable part of who he is, it's not the sum of who he is, but it's a valuable part of who he is and how he lives and how he does ministry Jesus moves in power. Jesus has the Father's authority 
So he's going to have this bride, but she's not allowed to touch the power. She's not allowed to touch the authority. Whatever. Jesus will have an equally yoked bride who will also know how to operate in that authority and that power in right ways, in right measure. I just gave you this verse here in uh, John 14, 10 through 14. Jesus said this. He said, when I speak, I'm not even speaking on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe on the evidence of the works. Whoever does believe in me will do the works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to go to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Two points I want to connect here. In this passage, Jesus talks about his authority. He says, I operate in authority, and then he connects that authority to the works that he's doing, the supernatural miracles. He says, I, when I move in authority, I'm moving actually in my Father's authority. Have you seen these crazy miracles I've been doing? That's by the Father. Then he says, hey, church, you'll actually do the same thing. You will operate in the same authority, and it won't be yours. It'll be the authority that my Father gives you, just like the authority the Father gives me. He says, it's actually better that it happens this way, that you will one day, or you will grow in, you will be able to operate in the type of authority that I operate in, because we're going to be equally yoked. Before this thing is over, you're going to be moving in the same kind of power and authority and understanding that I move in, because that authority comes not by me, or not of you, it comes from the Father. The authority comes from the Father for both the Son and his bride. That's what John 14 tells us. The bride will be in full partnership. I just want us to understand this. One aspect, one, I'll even say, significantly unexplored aspect. One significantly unexplored aspect of making ready is that we would be able to partner with him and go where he goes and does what he does. That we would be able, I mean, just how unready is the bride if she's got check mark on righteousness, check mark on, you know, love for Jesus, check mark, check mark, check mark. But then she's like, okay, you want to come with me? Let's go do ministry. Let's go do it like what I do. Oh, no, we don't know how to do that. We're like totally unprepared for that. That is a bride that's not quite ready. A significant, unexplored, perhaps, in our thinking aspect of the bride making herself ready is that she would be able to operate in partnership with Jesus in his initiatives, in his agenda. And remember, we know the book of Revelation is his agenda. There's more, but the book of Revelation is absolutely on the menu of the agenda of God. That's why we were given it. Revelation 1, it tells us the book was given to us so that the servants of God might know what must soon take place. We're to know what's going to take place so we can partner with it. I want for us tonight, and hopefully in this study that we've been looking at the, the uh, seals, I want for us to see the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals as part of the process, which makes us ready for partnership. We'll say that one more time. The fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, the ones we've been looking at over the past few weeks, I believe it's a significant part of the process it's a mandatory, it's necessary part of preparing the church to be that bride made ready, to be that bride in partnership. I think that actually these last three seals we've been looking at probably are the most significant upgrades in terms of partnership that we've ever seen in the history of the church. I mean, surpassing day of Pentecost upgrades. We are looking at some significant upgrades in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals. 
And again, if you missed those notes, they're available online. You can go listen to the teachings from previous sessions. All right, well, let's look at part two here. Uh, Roman numeral two, bottom of page two. Events dramatically changing the conversation. When we look at what's happening in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, we are seeing some game-changing judgments. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, all three of those judgment series, they're judgments. Jesus, the lamb, opens the seals, and each one of the seven seals is a judgment. It's causing problems on the earth for the bad guys. And these are game-changing events. They change the conversation. They change when the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals occur. They change the intensity. They change the progression of events. The fifth, sixth, and seventh seals are really significant. It is a pivot point in the end time storyline for sure. Incomparable upgrades. When I think about the day of Pentecost and what occurred and the baptism of the Holy Spirit resting on the church in that hour, up till that point related to the discipleship process of Jesus, following Jesus, it was the biggest moment that it happened. But when it happened, it only impacted a few thousand people. I mean, it only touched a few thousand people. And in the, even in the months that followed, thousands and thousands more, but not tens of millions more. We're talking about events in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal that will actually impact the entire body of Christ on the planet. We are talking about moments of universal upgrade for the church in terms of her partnership, her understanding, her sacrifice, her that partnership word though. I mean, we are talking about game-changing realities. Top of page three. How do we get here? Well, the first four seals, if you remember, they were aimed specifically in terms of like judgments. They were aimed at the lost world in a very direct way. You saw war and famine, and we saw, you know, the rise of some other things that were pretty interesting, wild beasts. But we saw, uh, we saw the, the release of judgments in that uh, uh, light. We saw judgments looking like that. War, famine, disease, plague, wild beasts. That's what we were looking at. But then when we shifted in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal, they didn't look like that at all. They took on a completely different form. But there's still judgments. But their judgments aren't affecting the world the way that those three judgments were affecting the world. Those three judgments, it's almost like, you know, the Holy Spirit was kind of given the one, two, three punch to the infrastructure of the earth. And then in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, the ones that we've been looking at most recently... It's like he's giving upgrades to the church and allowing the church now to be the ones that are bringing the judgment into the earth. So instead of God releasing a plague, he's releasing the fullness of martyrdom in the church. Instead of releasing a, a, a war, he's releasing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in its fullness across the whole church. Instead of releasing wild beasts and, and whatever else that was in the fourth seal... In the seventh seal, we see him releasing authority from heaven on the praying church to now operate in a whole new level of partnership and authority. These are really troubling, actually. If you're a lost guy, you're more concerned, if you've got clarity about what's happening, you're more concerned about seal five, six, and seven than you are about the wild beasts roaming. Because the wild beasts, you can probably try to get away and you can count them. 
The, the subject matter of what's occurring in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal is the global church entering into a greater level of anointing and a greater level of partnership with the plans of God, which then winds up uh, uh, hurrying the process of the final judgments. After the seventh seal, that's when things start to really hit in a major way, in a more devastating way, in a faster way. All right, let's look here also at part E if we can. And I know we've been looking at this subject. I recognize we're doing some repeat tonight. But here's what I'm, I'm thinking is important. This is such a new idea if it's a new idea to you. If this is like when you're like, I've never really thought about the seals being partnership, the church getting upgraded. I never saw that before when we were reading the book of Revelation, reading the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals. I recognize that this is a new enough idea. It bears repeating. It bears camping out on and kind of getting it and talking about it from this angle and that angle. And so I'm trying to be intentional in these last several weeks and to use tonight as kind of the capstone moment so that we can then move on into the trumpets uh, in future weeks. But here's what happens in the, in the seal judgments. After the seventh seal, after the church receives that fire from heaven that's thrown to the earth, and again, it's, it's the, the fire from the altar in heaven where God is running the government. He throws that, or it's thrown, to the earth. It's at that point that now the judgments, not only do they go more traditional judgment looking. Remember we kind of said that the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, they didn't look like traditional judgments. The first four looked like judgments. The next three kind of figure out, well, how does this fit into the storyline? Well, when we go into the trumpets, they look like judgments. Oh, but they take on a high level of supernatural tone. Things go from war to stuff turn into blood. I mean, it gets nutso when you start looking at the trumpet judgments. I give you a couple of ver uh, verses here, bottom of page three. You're talking about the bride in heaven now, or the, not the bride in heaven, the bride and heaven in partnership, bride on the earth, all the activity of heaven in partnership, beginning to release the greatest judgments that the earth has ever seen. We go from war and famine to blood raining down from the sky and demonic hordes of hell being released on the earth. I mean, that is just war, demons from hell. Like, that is very different. Plague, blood falling out of the sky. These are very different things. I want us to understand the tone shifts here. We go from these light judgments, if you will, seal one, two, three, four, to the church being empowered, which are actually like, it's the, it's the defibrillator. I mean, it, it's really, it's a supercharge into the church in order to give increased level of authority and understanding. It's a pivot point, and right after the church has been empowered with seal five, six, and seven, now the church is in partnership with heaven, and it's next level judgments that are being released of a supernatural order. The first angel sounded his trumpet. There came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled on the earth. Gross. Revelation 9. He opened the abyss, smoke uh, rose from it, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given uh, power like that of scorpions. And I could have given you the rest of the verses there on that passage. They're the gnarliest looking demons you've ever heard of in your life. They just came out of the abyss. Okay, so here's my point. We're looking at a major pivot we're talking about a very transitional time in human history. I don't want us to be thinking about the book of Revelation as a fairy tale. 
reading about it like we're, you know, watching Lord of the Rings or something. I want us to be thinking about the book of Revelation as happening on Tuesdays. It's going to actually happen on planet Earth. It'll happen in Arlington. It'll happen. The book of Revelation is realer than you are. You might be real. I know some of you. You might be real. The book of Revelation is real. It is fact and it is future. And as it unfolds, we want to be those that have been staring at it long enough ahead of time to know what's coming because that's why we were given the information ahead of time. Why were we given the Bible verse, John 3, 16? How about so that we would know it? How about so that we would understand, not just not that we would just know the verse, we would understand the power of what's being communicated in John 3, 16. The reason we're given the Bible is so that we would know the Bible, we could be impacted by it and understand what that means about the future, about God, and about ourselves. All right, so now, this is going to be a little bit more of a play-by-play narrative. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give any new information now. I'm just going to retell the story of what we've been looking at in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals. But I'm going to tell the story in, in, the, uh, in the framework of a narrative of what we've already developed, but I'm going to start putting it chronologically. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and this happens. I want to paint a picture of what life looks like when the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals are becoming reality and are, are real in the earth. Okay? So one of the things that I hate to do but I think I wrote it better than I'm going to be able to reiterate it, is I'm going to read some portions of this. So just get ready for Lamo Brad reading some of his page, okay? Uh, because I just think I wrote it better and I'm going to be able to re-say some of it. Okay, Unprecedented, unprecedented prophetic clarity. I want you to think about this. We're walking into the fifth seal. That's the one about martyrdom. But before, we're, uh, but before that starts, we will have just lived Revelation Six, one through eight. The first, second, third, and fourth seals. And we will have watched the pages of our Bible unfold exactly like our Bible says week after month after month after month. We will have watched it chronologically unfold and we will be empowered with that very real, the the reality of how real the Bible is, how real revelation is, how real these events are, Can you just imagine how real God was to all the Israelites that just walked through the Red Sea? I mean, they just saw it. They just did it. They're like, dang, he's real. We're going to have a dang, he's real moment come the fifth seal because we will have just watched our Bibles be so perfectly accurate, exactly like it was written play by play for months as those things unfolded. When we are armed no longer with, these things are going to happen, going to happen, happened. When we're armed with happened, it changes everything. It changes faith. It changes understanding. It changes expectation. We're now all on the same page because whoever wasn't on the same page when those things started happening, we kept pointing to Revelation chapter 6. We kept pointing, we kept pointing, they're like, this is next, this is next. Eventually, all of us are going to believe it. Everybody's going to be on the same page and we're going to then believe Revelation, the rest of Revelation 6 and 7 and 8 and we're going to really believe the rest of the whole deal. And we're going to be operating in that sort of a clarity. That's unprecedented prophetic understanding. When we've got that as a universal reality in the church, expecting what comes next is right whatever the, the book of Revelation says. Next, 
We will have just experienced, as we talked about in previous sessions, the significant protection from the judgments of Revelation 6, 1 through 4. Remember, we spent that whole session talking about Psalm 91, and then two weeks later, COVID broke out. Remember? We were talking about the, the, pre, the protective blessings that rest on the praying people and what that looks like in the land of Goshen when Goshen was protected from all the plagues of Egypt, even though all the plagues of Egypt were massively disruptive for the rest of the Egyptians. The church will have just experienced that. The lost world will be enraged at the church. Enraged. This is one of those read moments. I'm looking at part C here on page four. They will have already been edicts decreed against the saints. The Antichrist will have set himself up in the temple declaring himself as God, and he will have mandated that he be worshipped at the cost of death upon refusal. But the fact that the saints are largely escaping the judgments previously mentioned will infuriate the Antichrist and all of those who follow him. It will be this rage that fuels the greatest season of martyrdom that the church has ever known. Across the earth, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of believers will be martyred in the span of a very short period of time. That is really intense. But martyrdom historically backfires. Martyrdom historically backfires on those that are doing the martyring, during, ding, ding, however the word is. What happens is, the thought is, hey, listen, if we martyr these saints, they'll, they'll stop. They'll quit it. Besides, we'll be able to kill them all, and then they'll be gone, and it never works. What happens instead is the church winds up red hot. The church winds up fiery in more resolve, and the Holy Spirit doesn't ever let the bad guys all do 100% of what the bad guys want to do. The Holy Spirit's still very much alive and active. So the Holy Spirit is invigorating those that didn't get martyred, and they are now fiery. I'm talking about the apathetic, like you could barely get them, you know, to, to do anything. Like they barely love Jesus. If they like, they weren't engaged in the conversation. They weren't following Jesus that much. If they're not martyred, they have to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? Because if I'm in, there's only one version of in and it's all in. And they're all in. And what happens is in the midst of the Antichrist raging against the church, it's going to totally backfire on him. And the church is actually going to become fiery hot. Plus, the believers are going to be scattering. They're going to be all over the place, to just like what we saw in Jerusalem when persecution hit Jerusalem in the early church. This is a monumental time where more saints are going to be killed in, than in all of human history put together. But in the context of that, we're going to see the greatest revival that's ever seen because the bride is not going to shrink back. The bride will be in the process of making herself ready. And part of her making self ready is standing for Jesus in the midst of the greatest persecution that's ever come. Well, this is going to fuel the prayer movement like crazy. When every believer on the planet is all of the sudden on the run for their lives, can you just imagine that? The church is on the run for their lives. I mean, it's going to be a very real reality. There's going to be a lot of like, hey, scatter moments. The church will turn to God in prayer even more fervently than ever before. We will need God. He will be real for all the reasons we've been looking at. And we will be leaning into the very real God. The church will find her identity in this season as the bride of Christ. And will begin to flow in unprecedented unity. At this point, the family of believers will be gathered together in close-knit communities of prayer because prayer will no longer be a casual option. Prayer will mean life and death. It'll mean protection and survival and strength. 
Prayer is going to be the most real it's ever been. And so the church will pray. Another thing that's important related to this shift is when the church gets scattered, the church is going to lose access to most of its buildings. In a minute. I'm going to get a moment's time. Because those, that's going to be like hunting practice sites. Like don't go to the church building. There's guys in the parking lot waiting for you to show up so they can martyr you. Don't go to the church building. So we're going to have all sorts of other ways and things and thoughts. But I'll tell you what, when people are on the run, denominations disappear. Because when Episcopalians and Baptists are on the run together and they're hiding out in the basement of a charismatic that they don't like, everybody starts getting along real quick. Everybody starts playing nice. And the body of Christ will be more unified in the midst of this pressure than the church has ever been before. And will then begin to operate in power, unlike anything. This is actually going to catapult the church into its future. This martyrdom situation is actually going to catapult, slingshotting the church into her future, into her purposes in a significant way. How about the impact of power? We talked about Revelation chapter 6 and the sixth seal. And one of the significant points of that is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. God's going to pour out on his bride. This is a long-awaited moment. Back to that John 14 verse that we were reading earlier. When the church every day, nearly every believer or every believer every day is doing greater works than Jesus did. Because this is a Bible promise. John 14 hasn't happened yet. Not even a little bit. And it's going to. When John 14 is in fullness, who Whoever believes in me, that is 100% of believing Christians, whoever, you'll do what I've been doing. You'll do even greater things than the crazy nut stuff I did. I did crazy nut stuff. You'll do crazy nut stuff 2.0. You'll do it because I'm not going to be here. I'm going to go to the Father, but I still want the Father glorified, and you're going to operate in the same spirit and the same authority I operated in, and it's going to bring a lot of glory to the Father, and it's going to accomplish some crazy stuff on the planet. I'm going to give that to you. When the church is endowed with that kind of a power, it's going to change everything. That is no longer going to be, you know, how do, how do we answer the problems? How do we answer the trouble? You know, it says that there's going to be two witnesses that are operating in this period of time. Same period of time. And it says they can call down whatever plague they want as often as they like. That's so intense. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the church. Let's say we only operate in a tenth of that. Can you, operate, can you imagine the whole church operating in a tenth of that kind of authority and power and the move of the Holy Spirit? Because that's actually what John 14 promises that will happen. The whole church operating in that sort of power. The Holy Spirit poured out. But do you know what also happens in the midst of this? Top of page six. The church will have also become, and I don't mean at this moment in, in the storyline, it will have been becoming. We're already in the process now of becoming. The promise that Jesus made about what the expression of his church would look like before he comes. He said this, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Before Jesus comes, the thought process of corporate prayer will be the most normal thing within the church. Right now, it's kind of sprinkled here and there, and I'm grateful for everywhere that it is. But that's not what Jesus promised. Jesus said, my house, it's my house, and I get to define what my house is. You want to know what my house is? 
my house, it's going to have some preaching. My house is going to have some mercy deeds. My house is going to have discipleship. My house is going to have a lot of things. But do you know what my house is? My house is a house of prayer. Everything will flow out of that reality. Prayer isn't on the menu. It is the menu. It's the substance of the menu. Everything else will be done off the menu. The menu, the whole menu is prayer. My house will be a house of prayer. And out of that reality, yes, you'll do mercy deeds. Out of that corporate reality, yes, you'll do discipleship. Yes, you'll do outreach. Yes, you'll move in power. Yes, yes, yes. But my house will be a house of prayer. We're in process now. I mean, the global church is starting to awaken to this reality. But the difficulties that are coming are only going to draw us to our knees, drive us to our knees all the more. This is going to be the global reality. Jesus will have a praying church. I don't mean a little prayer. I don't mean a little bit at mealtime and when you go to bed and when you wake up. That, that will be like the least amount of prayer that's happening. There will be a night and day prayer reality across the earth. The church will become a praying bride in the sense of night and day prayer plus. Well, when the anointing is poured out on a praying church, can you just imagine, just get your head in the picture. Martyrdom is happening everywhere. The church is gathered together in basements and huts and tree houses and wherever else they can find all over the planet. And you know what they do almost the whole time they're together? They pray. They're already doing that. And then they're baptized with John 14 power. They were already praying. Now they're baptized in power. And they're all having dreams and visions like crazy. This is going to be the most explosive transformation for the church imaginable. We are looking at a transformation. We're looking at the God plan of how the church will make herself ready for full partnership. Well, what else happens? The impacts of authority, and then we'll break into groups. The seventh seal is a transference of power. We looked at that last week. An authority from heaven to the bride on the earth. This will initiate the release of the seven trumpets. Remember the seven trumpets, they only happen after the seventh seal. The seventh seal is God throwing authority and power from his throne down to the earth. It's at that point that the church that's already been making herself ready in righteousness, already been making herself ready in submission to Jesus' will, already been making herself ready in staying firm in the place of prayer, staying firm in the presentation of the gospel, staying firm, this church is ready now for authority. And I'll just tell you right now, if God did this today, we would mess it up really, really bad. We're not ready for this, but we will be when the time is right. You know, God has plans. They're perfect. And it's not just what he wants to do, it's when he wants to do it and the context he wants to do it in. His perfect plan, we can trust along with his perfect timing. Part of the reason when we read things in the book of Revelation, we read them and we're trying to apply them with today's context and it's the wrong context. So we look at, well, if that happened, I don't even know what we'd do. Uh, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> the book of Revelation continually says, just and true are the judgments of God and those judgments are killing over a half of the planet in a very short period of time. We don't have the right perspective because we're imagining what things are like right now, not what things will be like then. The right plan of God and the right timing will produce the right result. It's a transfer of power. Now the church has been purified by the pain of the fifth seal, the martyrdom, and is now operating in the full measure of the supernatural power from the sixth seal. And she will now be handed unprecedented authority. 
She's learned submission and purity, how to keep step in the spirit. She's finally ready now to partner with Jesus in releasing his judgments. Can I just tell you real simply, anything that's in the Bible that God says, I'm into this, is a good thing, at least in its context. It's a right thing, at least in its context. The judgments of God are a right thing in their context, in their timing. The bride will be partnering with the plan and the timing of God to release the things that God says are good things. But that only happens after the seventh seal. This will be greatly troubling to the Antichrist. The martyrdom of the fifth seal will only have served to increase the capacity of the church to cause trouble for Mr. A and to foil his purposes. The church will have increased in the shadow of the fifth seal just think about the, the hiddenness of the martyrdom. Because it looks like martyrdom's killing the numbers of the church. But what's really happening is she's increasing in the shadows. And then exploding in the light and the power of, of the sixth seal. And now in the seventh seal, she'll have excelled to unthinkable new heights of partnership. As she's now able to walk with Jesus and do things with Jesus, the church has never done before. Releasing the judgments of God in the end times. A crescendo. Guys, this is a, it just doesn't get any bigger than the storyline. This is a wild ride, and it is the future of the church. All right, we'll stop there. We'll break into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Okay, hey, so at this point, we're going to go ahead and go into our time of Q&A, and what we do at this time is uh, you, uh, the group leaders, will ask the question, and then I'll repeat it for those that are watching or will watch this later. I'll repeat the question so that they know uh, what it is that's being asked. So uh, Luke Fredenberg, why don't we start with you? Okay, so if, uh, if, if the sixth seal is the fullness of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what do we do about that now? I mean, do we just kind of wait and like hope that a little bit more happens? How do we lay into that and engage and go, Lord, we want more now? How do we uh, interact with that and what do we pray and what do we expect in between now and the uh, fullness of the Spirit in um, the sixth seal? So everything that's in the Word is actually intentional to be a teaser, it's supposed to be like an, a, an advertisement for what could be. And I'll just say this. Anybody who goes after encounter, goes after partnership with God, goes after power with the Lord, is going to get more than the guy that doesn't. And so there's something about the Word that is a constant um, advertisement and provoking that even what might be fullness for the entire body of Christ later, we've got expressions like John G. Lake that moved in a significant level of the healing anointing that was unusual for, you know, just normal folk. I mean, it was like he had something on his life. And so anything that we see related to power in the Word of God, we don't need to wait for that, especially on an individual level or even an individual congregation level. Like a, a cluster of believers could lay hold of God and go after something and really wind up touching more and more of the Lord in that area. So, you know, I, I just remember when I first came to know the Lord, I started reading Genesis and I saw this dynamic relationship that Moses had with God. And I said, why can't I have a relationship that's deeper with God than Moses? I just asked the question as a, you know, one-year-old in Christ, like, what, where, what Bible verse says I can't have that? And I think that's actually, it was the Lord kind of putting a print on my, on my spirit that's actually a biblical principle across the whole word. And that is, 
Whatever we see in here, we can, see, we can have that. And even more, exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. So I don't want us to look at Revelation chapter 6 and go, ah, well, we have to wait for that before we see anything, before there are any fireworks. Let's instead go, if God is willing to give that, how much of that can I get before that? How much of that can I see be reality? And I think the church that's engaged in the dialogue, that's actually looking at the book of Revelation as true future events, looking at this as the reality what's going to occur on the planet, I think will actually stumble into all those thought processes and will actually help us get there faster. Because we're going to be looking at that which we can be guaranteed will be reality someday in the future. Well, then God, get me there quick. Like, help us start taking significant steps. I think studying the book of Revelation is actually supposed to be part of the provoking agent within the church, in the final generation, to get us primed and ready and pursuing into those things. And so, uh, so short version, let's go after it. Great question. Over here. All right, so of the three things that we're looking at, uh, you know, martyrdom, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then the transference of power in the seventh seal, uh, which one of those would I say or what I think and why would I think it would be the most significant? Um, I mean, I think that they build on one another. So I, I don't think you can have the reality of the seventh, which in my opinion, the seventh, the transference of authority to call down the judgments is the most bonkers thing ever. But you can't have that without the leadership of the Holy Spirit that comes with the outpouring in the sixth. And you can't have that power without the humility that's produced by the martyrdom in the fifth. So they build on one another. So it's, it's the perfect wisdom of God to have, have the transference of that sort of governmental authority follow the leading of the Lord, which follows the humility in, in all the leaning on the Lord, which really follows the prayer movement's development in the church. So it's really kind of all of it. But I mean, to me, what's the craziest is the, the governmental authority of heaven where the decisions that are made for the planet happen where a significant portion of that authority is transferred to the church on the earth to be able to now start operating in that on the earth, but that somehow we've graduated to a point of trustworthiness where it's not kids with guns. That's, to me, crazy. Uh, that's, that's craziest. But again, I think it's progressive, and you can't get there without the martyrdom and then the, the uh, outpouring of the Spirit in the, in the sixth. Um, Andy. So uh, to kind of rephrase it... Um, how about how much of what we're seeing in the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals could we have in like part but lesser degree in, the, in, in communities across the earth? And uh, worship leader, if you can come on up now, just while I'm thinking of that. Um, I think that, uh, that that's actually the way that the Lord does it. You know, even when we read the book of Revelation in the, the seven letters, and we're reading about these churches, these churches are all examples, mostly of bad things, mostly of what not to do. But these are entire congregations that were set as lampstands that were to be examples, not just for the church of history, but for the end time church. And the example is, see that, let's pay attention to that, learn from that, and do better. Or in the case of like, you know, Ephesus or, you know, Sardis. I mean, there were, there were a few of the churches that their rebuke was either non-existent or was lessened. There's things that we can look at and go, let's try to be like them and even better. And 
you know, let's not make those same mistakes. Let's do those same uh, things that we see them doing well and even excel all the more. So I think that part of the reason that we've even got the John G. Lakes in history, why we've got the Reinhard Bonkies, who he just passed, and that, that torch now, I mean, that was a very different man than anything we've seen before in human history. The ministry of Reinhard Bonnke saw more souls brought into the kingdom than any human being ever has in the human history. It's like, he just passed. I think we've got these examples, whether they're of individuals or of communities that are actually supposed to be provoking agents. And so uh, back to the, you know, kind of Luke's question earlier, I think it's the hour for forerunner groups, ministries, people to raise up in order not to draw attention to themselves, but to draw attention to what God will give and what, what biblical expression could look like in this hour. And so I think that the role of the forerunner uh, is extremely important in helping provoke the church and even lead the way, holding the flag and running on ahead so that everybody can look at it and go, oh, that's, we can do that. We can go that way. Uh, we can see expressions of the church look like that. And so I think that's, uh, that's essential and helps prepare the earth. You know, until, there's, until you've been in a Bible study like this where we're talking about the book of Revelation like it's real, the book of Revelation probably for many doesn't seem that real until you find yourself in a Bible study where they're talking about it where it's real. Well, in that way, we're kind of helping raise the water level, if you will, to be like, hey, let's, inv- let's engage in the, the narrative of the book of Revelation. Similarly with the fact that we're a praying, praying ministry, trying to actually have 24-7 prayer. And that thought process, well, it can be done in America in some little town. It can be done. Like this can, you can actually do the house of prayer. And we're kind of waving the banner, holding up the flag and going, look, it can be done. Follow us. So I think the role of 400 ministries in this hour, taking biblical principles that were promised will be fullness at the end of the age and starting to practice them at a level one in order to get to a level two, in order to build, I think is an essential component of what Christianity is supposed to be in this hour. So great question. All right, and Luke. So the question is, Uh, we've got this verse in Revelation 19 that says that the bride has made herself ready. How do we make that so practical tomorrow morning? What do we do in the normalness of our lives to be in partnership with that making ready? And that's, again, it's one of the most loaded questions because it's that statement, it applies to every area of life, every area of, of Christianity. But I would say this, maybe rather than give all of the, the nuances of what it would look like in the day-to-day, which is, I know, the, the real question of what you're asking, why don't instead we approach it from the standpoint of, let's go on the journey of doing the best that we can to figure out what the church in her final byproduct, in her final state, before, when Jesus comes, in the hour Jesus comes, what will the church be? How will the church be thinking? How will the church be operating? How will the church love? What will the church's interaction with Jesus look like? What does prayer look like in the individual sense, in the corporate sense? Let's get a vision for what the church will be like. And then in honesty, but not so much that we're beating ourselves up, let's assess the deficiency of where we're at on an individual level, congregational level, citywide, global. Let's look at where we're at and where we're supposed to go. And rather than looking at that as a woe is me, let's look at that as an action plan. Let's look at that as the steps that need to be taken in the area of righteousness, in the area of knowing the plan. I, I just say this. I don't think you can know the plan until you've studied the plan. So I think there's a, if you need maybe the most basic starting point, we have to know the storyline. We have to know where this thing is going. 
And so that's going to take some time and energy. It's going to take it's going to take a lot of staring at the book of Revelation and other verses, other passages. We've talked about there being 150 chapters in the Bible that talk about the generation that the Lord returns to. That's 150 chapters that we could be looking at and reading and asking the Lord to give us revelation about. I don't know that we can really know what steps in the most specific sense to take until we've got a general picture of where it is that we're heading. Of course, the answer is always pray, fast, read, give away your money, be nice. I mean, those, I mean, there's some real practical, simple, but I mean, if we really want to get down to it and we go, the bride has made herself ready. What bride? Ready for what? Ready for who? In what context? Because our making ready process is going to need to be congruent with what it is that she's making herself ready for and when and how and who and and all that. I mean, we can't just take a general guess at it and land on the right page. We've got to actually look at what it says. And I'm just going to read you again. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. If we want to know what's going to soon take place, we need to know the book of Revelation because that will help us understand our future. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.